Good morning. I've got a couple things to uh, start with before I begin the message this morning. I want to begin by thanking Johan for doing an outstanding job the last couple weeks. That's only his fourth or fifth sermon. And uh, it is hard to write sermons and then to deliver those sermons. He now knows it. And um, I just thank him so much. It is the responsibility of the leaders of our church to raise up new leaders. Um, and it is my responsibility to not withhold the talents and gifts of our people, but to set them on fire for the gospel and for the kingdom. So it is, this is why you're seeing um, people like Jeff Harrison and Johan and Rudy teaching in some of our classes, and you're going to be seeing them more, but that is to uh, use and cultivate their gifts. If we, if we don't give opportunities, how are we going to be able to send out and train the next generation for the gospel? I also wanted to uh, give a shout out to my daughter, who will be five years old tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of birthdays in August, September, and October. I think I know why that is. It's cold in January. Um, <laughs> and then I also wanted to just uh, tell you about a wonderful, wonderful time we had yesterday of just uh, to celebrate the homegoing of Noma Routon. She was a beloved servant of God. Uh, everyone echoed the same sentiments which were along the lines of, selfless, other-directed acts of love, which really is the embodiment of what I desire so deeply for our church, evidences that you were loved. And I got to share some of those stories of how Noma showed and demonstrated her love for me as a young person, and uh, it was just a wonderful time. I wish I had the note. I thought I brought it in. But my father was supposed to preach the funeral, but he couldn't make it, and he gave a note, and it was really a note of lamentation, but not for Noma. It was a note of lamentation for us, for the world that Noma leaves behind. And what he essentially said, I, it was the first time I read the note Susan wrote down his sentiments, and I went up there to the pulpit and read them for the first time, so I was at the mercy of his words. And it was just saying, essentially this, the generation of faithfulness is dying out. Who will fill their shoes? Noma was a person that could be counted on. Period. I and me were not in her vocabulary. She always lived her life for others. And it was a sweet time, but it is also important that we remember people like that, not to memorialize the person, but to be challenged by their love for God in our own lives. Not to be guilted that we're not doing enough because you're never going to do enough for God. Never. It's impossible. 
but to simply be challenged by those people who take our Lord's word literally and live a life that crucifies the ego for his glory. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn in them to 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Would that your Holy Spirit would convict every heart in this building today that our lives do not belong to us, they belong to you. Your word teaches it, Lord God. Your spirit convicts us when we are selfish. And yet the sin that remains in us cannot have its way, Lord God. We cannot give it over to be our leader and to, be a, to have dominion in our life, Lord God, that selfishness that pervades the sinful nature. Lord, give us a spirit that understands, Lord God, the truth that we do not belong to ourselves. That there is not a single moment of the day, not a single penny in our bank account, that there is not a single talent that we have been given that belongs to us or is for us. But all is for you. God, the New Testament does not preach to us to give a tenth. The New Testament preaches to us, give a hundred percent. Lord, only you can convict us to be stewards. Lord, bring upon us a conviction of stewardship Mobilize us for your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. The purpose of this sermon series, which I've entitled Stewardship, A Way of Life, is to establish a vision of biblical stewardship for our church. So that when we think about biblical stewardship, our church communicates with the same understanding of this word, stewardship. That's our goal. In this series, we're going to examine the foundation of biblical stewardship. That's what we're going to do today. And how, as God's stewards, we are to manage the gifts that God has given to us to be in service to love Him and for His church. We're going to look specifically at how God expects us to use our time, that's next week, our talents, that's the week after next, and our treasures, and that's in three weeks. 
He has given us all of these things for him and for his church. Today's sermon is entitled, God Stewards, Managing His Gifts for His Glory. Here's the central point of this morning's sermon. It's this. All that we have belongs to God. I want to prove that to you today. All that you have, all that I have, all that this church has belongs to God. In just a few moments, we're going to go over the budget of our church. When you go over your personal finances, maybe the budget at your work, think about how you're using your resources for God and for His glory. Our homes, our wealth, our family and friends, Our church and every part of our lives belong to Christ Jesus. Consequently, we are God's stewards managing his gifts for his glory. I want to begin by defining what the word stewardship means. What is a steward? A steward in the New Testament was a household servant who managed household affairs for the head of the family. Usually the father, sometimes the mother, was the one who was the head, not the steward. Managing the family involved delegation, discipline, encouragement, and most important, accountability to the head of the household. A steward, says says, uh, Kramer, he says, Barry Kramer says, a stewardship, the concept of stewardship requires a relationship between an owner the steward, the possessions, and the purpose. Someone owns something. He gives his things and his possessions over to the steward to care for his possessions on his behalf. He has an expectation of what should be done with those possessions. There is an expectation of caring for them. And then there is finally How you use those. How do you invest? How do you care for them? Stewardship was prominent in the Bible. If you were called to manage someone's home and their possessions, it means that you were trusted. It means that you were accountable. It means that you were qualified. Most of the time in the New Testament, stewards were slaves. In fact, Some believe that Luke, the man who wrote both the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts, which together is the most amount of material that any one person wrote in the New Testament, most believe that he was a slave because he had a benefactor. He was highly educated and he was very, very gifted at what he was doing and he was very, very focused and disciplined. And those were the characteristics of a steward. When we think about godly men and women in the Bible, we think, of course, of people like Joseph. In Genesis 39, two through six, this is what it says about Joseph who was a steward. That the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. 
So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. In other words, Everything except for his own private business was cared for by Joseph. Imagine being wealthy, wealthy beyond imagination, and having precious things that you cared for. You wouldn't leave that in anyone's hands. You would find someone that you trusted, that you knew was going to take care of it, that you knew was going to make sure that they brought in an abundance and that they were going to do only good with those possessions. That is the role of the steward. In the New Testament, the word steward, oikonomos, is typically used as a metaphor for the Christian's responsibility to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ, which God has entrusted to his church. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 says this. This is how one should regard us. Paul says, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, says Paul. The second verse proves that the essential character trait of a steward is that he or she be found faithful over the possessions that do not belong to him. Don't miss this point. The steward is to be faithful over things that are not his own. A steward lives in a house that not a single thing can he call mine. He is to use it to glory, to bring honor to the home. That's what the word in Greek means. Oikos is household. Nemo means to arrange. And a steward, oikonamas, was someone who arranged and cared for possessions that weren't his own. We are God's stewards of the graces and gifts that he's given us. But furthermore, you are all stewards of this church. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I don't think you believe that. I don't think you believe that. Okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think you believe that you're the stewards of this church. You are responsible for this church. There are leaders, but we are equal before the Lord. I eat of the same bread and drink from the same cup that you do. I am saved by grace, just like you're saved by grace. This morning, I want to impress upon you 
that each and every one of you will give an account for what the Northwest Baptist Church does during its tenure here in North Miami. Point number one, let's look at our verse and our passage. The first point I want to prove to you this morning is that we are not our own, but we belong entirely to God. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I want to take verses 7 and 11, and I want you to see them like bookends that hold in the stuff in between. They hold in the information between, and if you pull out one of those bookends, you're going to lose everything. These bookends give everything in the middle their stability. So I want to take verses 7 and 11 first, and I want to explain them to you and explain how they give the foundation for everything in the middle. Verse 11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. If we take verses 7 7 and 11, that's an easy way to remember this, by the way, 7-11. If we take verses 7 and 11 together, they establish the parameters for Christian service. Verse 7 speaks of our place in history, while verse 11 speaks of our purpose in life. What is our place right now in history? Where are we going? And what are we doing with where we are going? So our place and our purpose. So verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Christians have always been preoccupied with the end of the earth. Some of you think the earth is going to end tomorrow because we're having a solar eclipse. It's not not going to end tomorrow unless God has planned for it to end. At Christ's ascension, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Christians have always wanted to know when the world is going to end. But Jesus rebukes their eschatomania. What is eschatomania? It is an infatuation with the end of times. He rebukes it and he says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Your uncle does not know when the earth is going to end. The guy on the TV does not know when the earth is going to end. Some of these pastors are like the crystal ball uh, 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 gypsy who, if you just pay me $100, I'll tell you the conclusion of your fortune. Listen to me. Jesus rebukes that stuff. He says, stop it. Stop being preoccupied with numbers and signs and whether or not the eclipse is going to end the world. Stop it, because guess what you're doing? You're wasting your time, talents, and treasures. You're you're no use to us. 
The final end of all things is not the same, however, as saying that we are living in the end times. We are certainly living in the end times. John wrote his first epistle to the churches of Asia Minor late in the first century. And it is probable that by this time, the church had already experienced the persecutions of Emperor Nero and Diocletian, and Diocletian was really bad. Nero would take Christians. There was a fire in Rome, and when he blamed it, the one area of Rome didn't burn, and it just happened to be heavily populated by Christians, and they were a nice scapegoat. Many historians think Nero started the fire, and he blamed it on Christians. What he would do is at night, he would take Christians, he would crucify them, stick them on poles and crucify them, and light them on fire to light his gardens. That's pretty bad. During Diocletian, they would take Christians and they would sew them up in dead animal carcasses and they would allow animals to eat the carcass and the human beings on the inside alive for entertainment. So the church has experienced this already. Today, the church is experiencing persecution all over the globe. They were probably still feeling the effects of anti-Christian sentiments. So John writes to the church this. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Don't ask, are we living in the end times? Because you now know the answer, and the answer is yes. The Bible is clear. But such a reality should not lead Christians into hysteria and panic. In both 2012 and 2000, people began stockpiling food and water and ammo, and even some of them built subterranean shelters to prepare for the end of the world. Because even today, eschatomania still pervades much of Christian teaching, causing unnecessary anxiety and fear. If you put on Christian television, the chances that you're going to hear a story on Revelation are over 50%. I've always thought that this sort of behavior was odd. Who would want to be alive if the world ended? I saw I Am Legend. I don't want none of that. When, when there's nuclear holocaust, you know that guy who wears the tinfoil hat with the antennas? Listen, man, if it's going to end, I want to go with it. I don't want to stick around. I saw Book of Eli. That thing is bad. That is bad news. But furthermore, Christian, you and I both know you can run into the deepest cave, but when God comes, you're not going to be able to hide from his eyes. Thirdly, when he comes, Christian, it's for your glory and good. What are you afraid of? The end of times is at hand. Don't be afraid. Rejoice. 
How many people were just killed in Barcelona? The nightly news is saturated with wickedness and evil. You want to retain this world? The end of times is at hand. This is odd behavior for people who understand the word of God clearly. Peter tells us, though, that the proper response instead of anxiety and and fear and hysteria is the opposite. It is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. These two words are to be taken together to form a single concept, namely that Christians are to keep their wits about them as they remain grounded in the promises of God. Furthermore, our preparation is not to stockpile canned goods, but rather to pray always in the Spirit, praying that God in His sovereignty will continue to supply us with all the things necessary to fulfill the mission that God has given to the church. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 1 Verse 7, when Jesus rebukes the disciples about their eschatomania, the next verse in 1.8 is this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. We are to be working in God's mission with what he's given us. So we are to be sober-minded and self-control. Furthermore, our preparation, this preparation is not to be focusing on saving our lives, but rather giving our lives to him. Verse 11, though, gives us our purpose. It tells us that God has supplied us with spiritual gifts to accomplish this mission while he awaits the consummation of all things. Christians are not to flee to the caves in fear, but they are to run to the cities in faith. You don't need to worry about whether or not you are going to run out of the supplies that God has given you for these end of times. He has supplied everything that you need right now to accomplish his mission. But see, here's the issue. We don't want to accomplish his mission. We want to accomplish our mission. And so the supplies for our mission are going to always be lacking. You're never going to have enough money. You're never going to be healthy enough. But for his mission, he has supplied everything by his varied graces, is what Peter says. God has given every one of you a spiritual gift so that you can use It not for yourself, for selfish gain, but for him in his service. The gifts mentioned in verse 11 are not exhaustive, so we have to be careful to apply this concept of using our gifts in godly service beyond the immediate examples of speaking godly oracles and serving by the strength he supplies. Noted New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner 
says that Peter has divided all of God's gifts into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts, and that in placing the gifts into into two categories of speaking and serving, all the spiritual gifts are included under these two classes. Some of you say, I'll never lead a Sunday school, or I'm afraid to pray in our corporate prayer night. Or I don't know if I could go to the mission field if God called me to it. I don't, I don't feel like I can do that. You're just like Moses. Lord, you can't be serious. I stutter, he said. Jeremiah, Lord, you can't be serious. I am only a youth. And God says, yeah, but I'm the source. You are nothing but the cistern that I will pour my living waters out through you. Just give me your mouth. Just give me your life. I will guarantee success. But the success is the way I define it, says the Lord you will accomplish exactly what God has intended you to do when you give yourself to him. Because the guarantee is for his glory, as Peter says, all glory and dominion belong to him. In this way, every good thing that we gain in this life is to be used to glorify God rather than ourselves. Peter concludes the section with a simple statement of fact. To him belong glory, dominion, forever and ever. God has the absolute right to demand from his creation that it reflects his glory through the gifts he has given to them. In dominion, he determines the extent to which these gifts are used in his service and will bring him glory. This means that we work for the right end, namely his glory, rather than the outcome that only he can guarantee. Every pastor is tempted to to get up here and to use human uh, human inventions and human wisdom to build the church. Because we are told that you cannot take the truth into the world today because it will offend people and that's no way to build the church. But our job as stewards is to ask the master, these are your possessions? What would you have me do with them? What do you want me to do with these possessions that you have? And if he says, all I want you to do with those possessions that I've given you is tell the world about me, honor me, you don't get to say, you know what, master? I don't think that's the best way to handle your possessions. (laughs) After all, I I read a book. Haven't you read Berber's Driven Life? I mean, we don't need the Bible. We've got Rick Warren. I got no problem with Rick Warren. I got a problem with the Christians who treat that as their Bible. It's a good book. It's not the Bible. God says, just go and be faithful. 
Just go and sow the seed, water the seed, and I'll determine the growth. You don't have to worry about whether or not the Muslim who's next to you in your cubicle you think won't respond to the gospel. God says, don't worry about whether or not he's going to do that. You be faithful because you're my steward. I said, be my witnesses, not, not guarantee that he comes to the faith. You can't. It is impossible. As stewards, we do what the master has told us to do. This is a foundational. Listen to what I'm saying here this morning. I want you to, I want you to feel the gravity for just a moment. This is a foundational doctrine of Christian faith. And the Christian church in America is missing it. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 1 Peter 4.2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, says Paul. Now, that's everyone's favorite verse who wants to tell their child that they, every parent's favorite verse that wants to tell their child or keep their child from getting a tattoo. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Parents. Parents. Don't be bad theologians. If you don't want your kids to get a tattoo because you think it's stupid, tell them it's stupid, but don't. Don't, don't, listen to me. I'm not kidding with you. The Bible is not a weapon of falsehood. You use it as truth. If your son wants to get a tattoo across his face, say that is so stupid. That is so dumb. But I care about whether or not you love the Lord with all your mind, soul, body, and strength. Everything that you have belongs to the Lord. But listen, I, I, know that that, I, I know that some of you who are super duper conservative, that, that, that what I just said really bothered you about tattoos. Listen to me. Listen to me. It bothers me that we don't think God gets 100% of our money, of our time, of our thoughts, of our words. That bothers me. There, there's no New Testament principle of tithe. It's not 10%, it's 100%. You know, when we tithe, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this later. But when we tithe, one of the problems with giving just giving 10% is that we think we're 
done and the rest of us, rest of our money is ours. I gave my 10. So, yes, many of you probably aren't even giving 10%. But even for those who do, you still have a temptation of being sinful with that. Thinking that now you've paid off God like he's some kind of debt collector. All right, I got my 10%. Now you're fine. Go ahead and spend that money on alcoholism if you want. That's not God. How can you see your brother in need and not clothe him? Hmm? Hungry and not feed him. Sick and not visit him. 100% is the Bible. I'm not telling you if you give 100, you're going to get back 1,000. I'm telling you if you give 100, you're going to lose it. Do you hear what I just said? It's gone. And you may die with nothing but a silver spoon to your name. Like John Wesley. But you have already inherited the kingdom of God. What are you trying to store up here on earth? Don't you know moth and rust will decay it all? This is a foundational Christian doctrine. Nothing you have or are belongs to you. Listen to me. If you miss this, you may be guilty of God's condemnation, sin against him. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, what is our only comfort in life and death? The very first question of the catechism. Our only comfort in life and in death is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our only hope, the only hope in this life is that we don't belong to ourselves and in our death. He says, the, the confession goes on, or catechism goes on, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Question number two of the catechism. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? In other words, what do I need to know in order to live right now and be happy and die? Happy. What do I need to know? Number one, how great my sins and miseries truly are. You know, some of us, some of us aren't giving our best to God because we think God's lucky to have us. He doesn't need us. You need him. Second, second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. How are you delivered from your sins and miseries? It's not by not having a tattoo. Yesterday I took three things that Noma Routon was great at doing. Kindness, care, giving. And I affirmed, I wanted everyone in that room to hear 
that the reason why Noma Routon spends eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ is not because she was those three things, though she certainly was. The reason why she spends eternity with Jesus Christ is because Christ, God in Christ, has forgiven her. And until we understand how bad we really were, how good his salvation really is, we're not going to be stewards. A steward is happy to be the slave of a good master and to be in his house. Now, what would you have me do with it? The third thing the confession says, how I shall express this gratitude to God for such a deliverance. I am not here to guilt you this morning into stewardship. I am here to tell you that the love of Christ compels you. The love of Christ compels you to be a steward for God. If we wish to be godly stewards, we have to first acknowledge that we're not the source of our gifts. God is. We are guests in his household and not a single thing that we have belongs to us. His possessions, which he has so graciously lavished upon us, are to be used according to his will. He is the owner, we are the stewards, and the faithful steward manages his master's accounts faithfully and fruitfully. Now, let's look really quickly at the three points at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Since we belong entirely to God, and I think that that is without question, amen? Everyone agrees with me this morning that the scripture teaches that we belong to God, right? Okay, since you all said amen, let's read what we have to do. Now, what do we do with it? Since we belong entirely to God, we must use everything we are and everything we have to bring glory to him. Tom Schreiner says, the imminence of the end of the world should function as a stimulus to action in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles, that means they are passing through this life. Whose time is short should galvanize them to make their lives count now. Martin Luther was asked once about what he would do if he knew that the world was going to end tomorrow. His response was this, I will plant a tree and pay my taxes. Schreiner notes that Luther's point was that Christians should live every day like there is no tomorrow. In other words, we should live as God's stewards, expecting that our master may return at any moment. I think sometimes some of us are caught up in the end of times and the end, all the signs, so that we can excuse our laziness and apathy. 
Oh, uh, the end of days is uh, not now, it's in the future. No. Peter says the end of days is at hand. If Christ wants to tear open the roof of this church right now, what will he find you doing with his possessions? Matthew 24, 44 through 51. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, I don't like that very much either. Neither did I when I read it. The thought that the master would return while I was abusing or misusing what he has given to me is terrifying. And that's exactly what our Lord is trying to convey there. He wants you to be afraid, at least enough to respect that what you've been given is for him. So what are we to do as we await the master's imminent return? Let's go quickly. Number one, your mind belongs to God. You are to steward your mind. Remember, stewards, stewards, handle properly what belongs to their master. You are first and foremost to steward your mind. Peter says we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. This is not specifically a negative command against drunkenness, though it is not less than that. Peter is commanding us to be sensible and self-controlled, not given over to sinful and fleeting emotionalism, but rather to be grounded in the truth of God's word. Emotions are absolutely a part of the new life's economy. How can we not be ecstatic about what God has done for us? But we must never build our faith upon emotional experiences. Listen to me, Miami. You, Miami, you build your faith on emotional experiences. You run from one spiritual high to the next. We are not drug addicts of the Spirit. You will not worship God in your low points if you are basing your spirituality on emotionalism. Our faith must be grounded in the truth. Too many people do not care about reading this Bible, but care about the event of being in church. It's the event. 
I got to get the tingle up my spine. And when I get it, it's so good. Oh, I, man, I talk to people all the time. Oh, I was in the church, man, and the spirit was in me. And I was, oh, when we finally came down off of that, you sound like you're shooting yourself up with some kind of drug. Listen to me, that's unsustainable. Because when loved ones die unexpectedly and cancer comes unexpectedly, the emotions are down. What will ground you then? Jesus said the truth. I give you the truth and the truth shall set you free. I'm not against emotions. Listen to me. I'm not against emotions, but put them in their proper place. Emotions are the outpouring of truth. Truth will be what sustains us when we don't feel that we're saved. Truth will be what sustains us when we are down and depressed. Truth is what sustains us when we are hungry and tired. For Jesus himself said, man does not live on bread alone, on things that pass away, but on every word that comes from the Father. When Jesus was sick from not eating, fasting for 40 days, and Satan came to him, he didn't say, oh, but I remember the youth rally. I remember the trust fall. What did he do? You tell me what he did. He went to Deuteronomy and he quoted the word of God. Be stewards of your mind, Christian. The devil loves, loves, loves ignorant Christians. He loves when you don't read your Bible because you say the dumbest things to the world. I feel like I can't turn on Yahoo without another Christian, Yahoo, saying something stupid. That had he just read the word of God, he could have avoided. Number two, your heart belongs to God. Steward your heart. Peter tells us that above all, we must love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What he means is that our love for one another must not be conditionally based, but rather must be quick to forgive trespasses for the remainder of our time together. Schreiner notes that when believers lavish love on others, the sins and offenses of others are overlooked. There is no greater act that you can do than to forgive one another the way God in Christ has forgiven you. And I understand that forgiving someone who has hurt you is hard. Of course it is. You are justified in requiring a person to pay back their debts. We all saw the, the, the Shakespeare play of the merchant in Venice. You stand there and demand your pound of flesh even when what you would be paid would be better than your pound of flesh, there are people in your life right now you are demanding a pound of flesh from. And Jesus says, do you want me to demand my pound of flesh? Do you? No, I didn't think so. 
then go and forgive others the way God and Christ forgave you. Number three, your possessions belong to God. Steward your household. Peter commands us to show hospitality without grumbling. Oh, pastor again talking about hospitality. I gotta give my possessions. We just talked about this several Sundays ago, so I won't go into detail here. Instead, I will ask you once again, how are you using your homes and your possessions to bless God's people? Are you living intentionally for one another? Does the church know you're here? Does your church know that you love them? Is there hard physical evidence that you are using the possessions that God has given to you for him and for his glory? Finally, your gifts belong to God. Steward your hands. Steward your head, your heart, your household, and your hands. Peter tells us that each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Peter has in mind a general concept of blessings that God has given to us. There are various gift, gift lists in the New Testament, and not one of them is identical to the other. Many gifts are repeated, such as teaching, but the indefinite nature of these gift lists proves that every good thing that the Lord has given to you should be used in service to him. Do you possess wealth? Give it away. Are you gifted at the arts? Glorify God. Are you an encourager? Encourage one another. Do you have a beautiful home? Share it with one another and use it for evangelism. There is nothing wrong with having and cultivating the blessings and gifts that God has given to you. The issue is not what you have, but what you do with what you have. Don't feel guilty about the blessings and gifts that God has given to you. Just take them and give them to him. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. They've doubled everything God has given to them. But he who had received the one talent went, and he dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money, and he said, I have no talent Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. By the way, just to give you a denomination of talent, 
Roughly a million dollars is what a talent was worth. That's a weight, a measurement. So this is a good thing that the master's given you. It's precious. It's expensive. Some he gives five talents to. Others he gives two. Others he gives one according to their ability and according to his love for them. But whatever we do with them, use them to further his glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew that you, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have back what you gave me. What is yours? But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Why was he wicked? Because he based his knowledge of God on something other than Scripture and because he was lazy. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christian, stewardship is not optional for you. God will judge us not for having things, but for failing to use those things for him and his church. Christian stewardship recognizes that this life is passing away and that only what we do for Christ will last into eternity. Therefore, Christian stewardship uses what God has given today and stores up treasures in heaven. We handle the master's possessions in this life with great faithfulness and with great fruitfulness. Let's pray. Father, your word has been preached. Truth has been given. It is up to you, Lord God, and the Holy Spirit to convict by the reading of the word. You, Lord God, our master. All of us, Lord God, including this pastor who speaks, you know, Lord God, where I have been unfaithful with what you've given me. Father, I pray that we will be faithful stewards, that when you come, you will see the Northwest Baptist Church actively loving and serving one another, actively loving and serving you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you stand with us as we close?